There's one or two books a year that catch fire, right? Like Educated by Tara Westover, right? Like that book came out of nowhere and caught fire, right? There's one or two a year that do that. Uh, they're almost always memoirs, almost always. And usually even those get something, something somewhere gave them a pop, right? But for the rest of us who are mortals, there's no way to like, you don't, you can never expect anything's gonna sell. So you've got to take it out there and market it. And the way to market it, here's, here's the trick. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Tucker Max back on, um, and we're going to go for a a different format. This was Tucker's idea, and I was really excited he suggested it. So what are we going to do today, Tucker? So today we are going to walk through a basic book positioning process and see if you have a book in you if there's an audience that would care about it and if it makes sense for you to write it. Okay, I love it. And for people who like today's show and they want to check out your company more and they want to go through processes like this, uh, I know you've got a lot of free resources. You've got a a lot of great content out there because I've been watching a bunch of it on YouTube and going through your site and downloading your PDFs. Where, Where do you send people first? Where do you like to direct people? If you're not sure, the best place to start is probably scribebookschool.com. Like that will, you just put in your email and then there is a a massive course that you can start immediately. And the first video is kind of a little bit like what we're going to work through today, which is should you write a book? The next video is what kind of book should you write? And so by the time you're done with 30 minutes, you can know, yes, I should write a book. I want to write a memoir. No, I shouldn't write a book. Yes, I should write a book, but I'm going to write a nonfiction business book or whatever. And then we have like a memoir track and a nonfiction track. The info is all free. Like our services obviously cost money. You don't need to buy any of it to get the entire course for free. I love it. Okay. Well, you're in charge this time. All right. Excellent. So we've already established you want to write a book, or at least you think you might want to write a book, right? Yep. Okay. All right. So the first big question, then the most important question, what are you hoping to accomplish with your book? I'm hoping to write a book that attracts people to want to come invest in our real estate investment trust. All right. So you want investors. Yep. Investors in your REIT. All right. All right, cool. So tell me, give me, tell me who these people are. Who's, who's this audience? Cause it, this, it sounds like a pretty niche audience, which is totally okay for a book. In fact, it's better, the more niche uh, possible. But like an investors in a in a REIT, like I don't know who those people are. Tell me. Yeah, at least for ours. I mean, it's different for if you're Blackstone or something, right? But for us, who we're targeting is the millionaire entrepreneur. Like my buddies, who they make a bunch of money at their company. They like real estate. Maybe they own some real estate, but they don't consider themselves like a real estate genius. You know, like they really like the idea of you know solid, reliable passive income for the long term. They don't want to be a landlord, but it, you know, investment funds, real estate funds kind of feels like a bit of a black box. And so, you know, it seems pretty basic, but the the industry has made them feel dumb, you know? And so they're interested in it, but maybe they don't want to look dumb by asking questions that they feel like they should already know the answer to or stuff like that. Is this so again, I don't know this industry very well. Is that a thing that 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 REITs and other funds like that make people feel dumb because they, they're very opaque? No, I think the 
I'm just talking about the finance world in general. You know, okay. the, the finance people, we always are invite in like inventing more complicated words for things we could say simply so that we sound smart. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like Warren Buffett says the the high priests of finance need to use all, all this complicated language to make people feel dumb enough that they have to pay their fees, you know? Yeah. yeah. So academics do the same thing. Sommeliers are lying. Experts always do this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's it's the entrepreneur who they've made great money doing something else. Maybe they sold their company. Maybe they just have good cash flow. But either they like if they're if they just have good cash flow at their business, but they maybe feel like they have too many eggs in one basket. So they're looking for an alternative stream of income that they can just kind of set it and forget it and just not have to worry about money ever again, you know? So owning like boring, reliable apartment buildings or or industrial space for Amazon warehouses like that, you know, it's just kind of plain vanilla. Nobody's getting rich, but nobody's losing their money, you know? And it's, yeah. it pays way more than bonds. You know, you look at the average dividend stock on the stock market, it's paying about 2% per year right now. And we're paying kind of half cash flow, half appreciation. We're probably going to hit closer to 8%, you know? So, you know, the, the cash flow element is somewhere between double to triple what they're getting out of dividend stock, which is way more than a bond, right? Without right. necessarily taking huge startup risk or typical business risk investing, right? So it's either that person or it's the guy who sold his company, has a big whack of cash and just really doesn't want to lose it. You know, like maybe he's doing a little bit of angel investing and he's buying, buying a beach house in Hawaii and some stuff, but he just wants to have some income he just doesn't have to think about again doesn't want to be a landlord doesn't want to have to think about it just safe boring reliable yep, safe and reliable passive income yeah i got it okay all right so this is actually really simple those two are great here's where it gets a little tricky what what could you write about what knowledge do you have that is valuable uh, and interesting to those people right? To, to the people you just described, why are yeah. they going to care about what you're going to write? Because like they love the thrill of being an entrepreneur. It's like, it's like going to Vegas, you know, is this business going to work? And it's adrenaline pumping. Right. But, right. and hence the reason they spent 15, 20, 25 years getting good at it to become a millionaire that way. Right. But now they, they're with their golfing buddies who are bragging about what great investors they are. And this dude's like, I make million dollar YouTube videos for brands. I'm not a great investor. I'm a great guy. I'm a great, great guy at running a marketing agency. Right. Right. And so they want to feel smart. They want to, they want to like, maybe not have to have pedal to the metal all the time because like for, I have a close friend, she, she built her consumer products business. Uh, she's doing about 8 million a year right now. And she regularly talks to me about her anxiety of, what if everything changes? What if this just goes away? Yeah. So we've been talking about, hey, if you even had a couple million bucks at, you know, 5% cash flow, plus you got some appreciation, there's a, you know, there's a hundred grand a year for the rest of your life, no matter what, you can put, put your grandkids, grandkids through college, you know? I don't know if that answers your question. Sort of. It does. It tells me why they'd be interested in investing with you. Oh, right? why, why, what do they want to hear from me though? Well, yeah. Let me actually take okay. a step back with the question. Yeah. What? Super quickly, one sentence. What would your book be about? It would be about applying Warren Buffett's principles to commercial real estate investing. Okay, explain those to me real quick. So most people in commercial real estate, they take a lot of debt. They take a lot of risk speculating, buying land and developing it, stuff like that. Very few people 
by existing cash flow streams. And so as a result, real estate can be super risky if you're speculating, if you're not buying something that has safety of principle and an adequate return, right? And so Warren Buffett's principles about, so, so you look at somebody like Brookfield, okay? They've got $500 billion under management. They've done this. They've taken Warren Buffett's principles to real estate, except they're meeting with like the Qatari National Investment Authority who's going to put, write a $4 billion check. They're not sitting with my buddy who's made $4 million last year to talk about, does he want to, you know, does he want to put his little tiny bit of money in, right? Yeah. So, so I want to basically, what Warren, what Warren Buffett taught Brookfield brought to real estate, except they're busy meeting with giant pension funds, not meeting with my buddies. I want to teach my buddies what, what Brookfield essentially did. Okay. All right. So then, so the book is how to apply Warren Buffett's principles to commercial real estate, right? Yep. All right. And so then you're basically, basically going to explain, here's why this really works well. Here's yep. exactly how it works. Yep. All right. So, and then they're going to care because, so tell me, I get why they're going to care about investing with you. Mm -hmm. Why are they going to care about the book though? Because it gives them the chance to feel smart about investing that they've yeah. constantly had things telling them they're not smart about. Yeah. Because Bloomberg and everybody else has been using such complicated language that mere mortals don't relate to, right? And because they haven't spent 18 years of meaningful repetitions getting good at investing. And so this is like the Reader's Digest version of like, skip ahead, skip ahead and, you know, don't have to go through quite so much pain to get good at investing so that when you're golfing with your buddies and they're bragging about their investments, you don't have to feel sheepish that you feel like you don't know what good investment approaches are. This, this is like such an easy book. This is so good. All right. So let's, let's review. You want to get investors in your real estate trust. Got it. So who are those people? You're looking basically for two types who are very similar. Someone who has money, an entrepreneur with some extra, extra money, they want some passive income, they, but they don't want to deal with any of the BS of being in real estate. They don't want to be a landlord and they're not exactly sure how to kind of get in. Or even if they know a little bit, they don't want to deal with all the BS of it. Or you want someone who's just cashed out or someone who has a lot of money who needs some diversity in their, in their investments, and, but they still want cash flow. They want something safe, something that works well, so, some, uh, something basically like that, those two groups. And then what are you going to teach them? You're going to teach them essentially how to apply Warren Buffett's principles to real estate and how to and explain real commercial real estate investing in a way that is super simple that they can understand and that they can then explain to their buddies on the golf course or their friends at the salon, if they're a woman or whoever, and sound just as smart as anyone else, knowing that they're, they have a smart, safe cash flow investment. Yeah. And uh, a couple of my co-authors who will be on it. So one is my business partner who's owned and operated commercial real estate for 30 years. You know, that's how he made his millions. And mm -hmm. then the CEO that we hired to run our REIT for us, my buddy I've known for 17 years, he's bought over $2 billion worth of these buildings during his career. So he understands, he like, there's a difference when you're buying like a fourplex versus you're buying 15,000 apartment units, right? <laughs> I so, can imagine. So, so for the added credibility in the nitty gritty of like, anyways, all I'm saying is I've got some experts to fill in some of the nitty gritty about re commercial real estate that have the highest, that have really high level credibility. And what I'm bringing to the table is this Brookfield, Warren Buffett approach of 
you know, how you're not going to find a good deal buying what's popular, how, you know, how you know the difference between a contrarian investment that nobody's doing it because it's dumb versus how you can break it apart in, in very simple, plain English ways to recognize, you know, no, this has a really strong likelihood of paying this cash flow for a long time. And the price you're paying for it now is a good multiple to buy it. Like my, my partner, John and I, and my brother who we ran our last fund together, we bought, we, we partnered with like $30 billion Husky and $50 billion Enbridge. We were doing like big multi-million dollar energy investments on iPhone calculators. Like you do not need all this garbage with Greek letters in the formulas. Like yeah. it's just not that difficult. And so I want to bring it down into plain English. So even if somebody doesn't go with us, if they're looking at another real estate fund or they're looking at a real estate deal, they can feel like they know what they're looking at. Your book's going to teach them exactly how to think about this and even on some level how to do it, at least from their perspective, without you. Yeah, these same cool. these same principles, they can apply to buying their own fourplex or something if they yeah. do want to be a landlord, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. We just happen to be buying you know, much larger, much higher quality, more diversified buildings than that. But the, the principles are the same. It's just the decimal points change. Right, exactly. All right, dude, this sounds like a, uh, like, seriously, like an obvious, this is a fastball down the middle book. You have a very clear set of goals, very clear, specific audience, and a very clear reason why they are going to like this book, like why it matters to them. Why do they care? Right. So tell me right now, then like, I feel like a salesman, <laughs> but I, like, I like literally I'm about to do this. What, what's, what's stopping you right now? Cause like, this is this is all like it's almost anticlimactic how like straight fastball down the middle. Well, I is, did. Is... I did watch a whole bunch of your YouTube videos and I was taking notes on this stuff and I've been calling my partners and say, should it be this or that? Right, good, good. So this is because like you know, this is book dude, idea this number is three. This is perfect positioning. This couldn't I have nothing to say. To well, this. I just it's followed actually... your step by step guide, basically. All right. Well, good. I don't feel as bad now. I feel like, my God, man, this is this is exactly right. This is real. You could call it, but you know, Buffett's like uh, the how to use Buffett's principles for commercial real estate. That's not a great title, but that's perfect positioning. That's like, oh, because he's already a big star. Everyone knows he's a great investor. Everyone understands what that means. It means safety. It means cash flow. It means uh, predictability. Like this, this is well, great. I'll, I'll tell you the other thing too is like it's basically just the product that we wanted to own. Like I want to still do some Elon Musk stuff later in my life. Right. Right. But I got a wife and four kids and like, you know, I made, I became a millionaire with enough to retire two different times in my twenties and lost it all both times. Right. Like this third time I plan on keeping it, you know, hence the reason we've literally spent a decade reading 6,000 pages of Warren Buffett books, going, flying to Omaha to his shareholder meeting, buying courses. We've even written and taught our own courses to groups and one-on-one to CEOs because it was just so painful losing it all twice, you know? The, the very, just the very best books teach others how to solve a problem that you haven't solved, which is like that, by the way, you just nailed your intro. Uh, I, like I'm going to make up the facts because I don't know them, but the story is there and it's awesome. It, the intro is when I was 23, I made my first million. In fact, I made 2.6 million. By the time I was 26, I had lost all of it. But don't worry, I rebounded. By the time I was 29, I made 3.4 million. So I was set for sure, right? No. By the time I was 31, I was worth nothing. Less than nothing because I was in debt. I'm now 40 and I'm worth far more than I ever was in my either of the times in my 20s. 
And the only reason is because of what I put of the, the principles I learned and I'm now sharing with you in this book. I'm in now like that. If I care at all about real estate and money, because I picked up the book about like that's Buffett's principles for commercial real estate, that intro I'm now in. Of course, I'm reading the whole thing. Done. <laughs> you know, I have a question for you. So, you know, we've done like 400 episodes of the podcast now, right? And right. I look at the overwhelming majority of the high profile people that have been on and they have one or more books, right? And I've been thinking about writing a book for about 15 years. I'm, I'm such an audiobook nerd listening to everybody else's, right? And so last week I had Shane Snow. Uh, do you know the book Smart Cuts? Dude, I know Shane really well. Oh, really? I've, I've hung out. Yes, Shane's a great dude. Okay. I had Shane on the show. It was great. So we, I invited him to like do a mini series. So we just finished a seven part mini series. Now it was like seven different 90 minute sections we finished up last week. Okay. And He's talking to me about the level of thoughtfulness he brings to his book. Like he watched the series Alias, you know, the J.J. Abrams one. And like went through all the different, like how he starts things in the middle and he leaves cliffhangers and just like to get people's interest and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. I guess the question for me is when Tiffany Haddish says, I need Tucker to actually (laughs) come do my book. What's Mm -hmm. the, what's the next level thinking that you're bringing that maybe a first time author like me is not. So, let me, I'll put this in, in, in your terms with real estate. The worst thing you can do as a first time author is try and be Shane or I. Yeah. Right. Because okay. Shane and I have been doing this, both of us, for decades. And there is nothing you can do in a short period of time that's going to get you close to us. Right. Just like, like I've never invested in real estate other than my house that I live in. Right. I'm not a real estate investor. And if I tried to do big time real estate deals just like you did, no way. Now, I could probably read your book and uh, that doesn't exist yet, but should. And if I read that and if I actually do what you say, I'll get like 80% of the way there, right? Which is close enough. And as long as I don't get in complicated deals, as long as I don't get in the fringe stuff, I'm going to be great, right? Writing works exactly the same. Exactly. Like it, it, I'm not trying to pitch my book here. That's why in my course, when it, it, which is free, we t- the way we teach writing, we don't go super deep into storytelling details. Because most people naturally are actually pretty solid storytellers. We just give them the frameworks to use to plug in, right? Because once you start diving into the, I'm going to open a loop here, I'm going to reference it here, I'm going to semi-close it here, I'm going to leave it to chapter six, shit gets real complicated sideways fast, right? And so like Shane and I can do that because we've been, like you said, like what do you got? You put in the years. Right. We've been doing it so long. Right. Uh, So that is a massive mistake I see that first time authors make is they go try and learn from or they go try and imitate the best practitioners. It's part of why we built Scribe and not on purpose. I did not realize how elementary I was going to have to make the process so that first timers could get it. But I also was shocked at how effective first timers can be with an elementary process. Like you can get you can absolutely do a book that is 60 to even 90% as good as something I would write as long as you stay as close as possible in your niche. So, so right? talk to me more about that. Okay. So this book on, on real estate, right? This is going to be really good because you have spent decades doing this and you know it up, down, left, right, and center. 
And, and if you think of it as, I want to make the best instructional manual on the Buffett principles for commercial real estate, and you tell stories that are based there and facts that are based there, and you really keep it there, you're a total expert, man. And so you're not an expert writer, but you are an absolute expert on this subject. And if I'm reading that book, the writing is really secondary. Now, it can't be bad, of course, but like, like you're a smart dude. So I'm assuming a level of education there, right? Which you have. And then from there, the best thing to do is get a really high quality editor to help you take what you've already done, right? You already did your vomit draft. We call a vomit draft or a rough draft, and then you've edited it. Let them, you know, pay them five or 10 grand and let them really dig in and worry about all of the story techniques and the editing techniques and that sort of stuff. It's way, way better than you trying to learn that yourself, right? Because the skill of storytelling and the skill of your knowledge are different things. You're not because if if you were trying to write a book about your subject the way that like you could actually write a better book about your subject, believe it or not, than Malcolm Gladwell, even though like he's a better writer, right? Because he doesn't know your subject, and if you if he, even if he spent a year research researching it. As we've learned from Gladwell's other books, he doesn't actually know the subjects very well. Like he even admitted 10,000 hour rule. He got the research wrong. Like he got Anders Ericsson's stuff wrong, right? So I would, I would, and most people would always rather read experts. The problem is, here's the problem. When experts try and sound like what they perceive experts sound like, Mm. as opposed to like just talking colloquially, like what we just did. You explain this really well. And I bet if we started diving in, I would totally get every single thing and I could do the math on my iPhone or whatever, right? The problem is people like you will read, sit down and write a book and they'll think, oh God, I've got to sound like a writer or I've got to sound like a fancy person in my field or I've got to sound like a sophisticated expert. It's exactly what we talked about at the beginning, right? As long as you avoid that, which is why the number one editing technique that we teach is, is we call it the read aloud edit. We literally tell our authors to read their, once they've written the whole rough draft, they've done a full kind of like a high level edit, a full deep content edit. They feel like it's pretty close. Read the whole book out loud and you will be shocked, shocked at how bad it is. Not the content, (laughs) the writing. Yeah, because as soon as you, it's a weird trick of of writing. As soon, if if something reads or reads out loud well, then it will always read well on the page. Always, every single time. If you can read out loud to me, like right now, if I were to read Scribe Method, my book that I've got right here, it, it would it would sound good on a podcast because I read the whole thing. I like I know it sounds good, right? And as a result, it reads really well on the page. Always, there's never an exception. Whereas you can think things read well on the page, but if you read it out loud and it doesn't sound well, it's not sounding well in people's minds. I'll tell you why. This is so crazy. When you read, in order to get the content, you know what you're doing, right? In your head, you're reading it in your uh, in your mind. Yeah. Right. Which is it's. Fu- I didn't even think about this until we had a person go through a guided author who's like a scholar about medieval times or they just knew a lot about it, I guess, or whatever. And they were like, you do realize that people used to read, everyone read out loud for hundreds of years. The idea of reading silently was like invented in the 17th century. And I'm like, what? He's like, oh yeah. And I was like, oh, no wonder the read aloud edit works so well, right? Because humans are designed to, to communicate verbally and visually, right? Auditory and visual, but like looking at bodies, not text. Text is uses a whole different part of the brain. It's a really, really weird thing. 
And so you can become a master of text like Shane and I are, or you can just read it out loud and get 80, 90% as good. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the ultimate hack. It brings up a few questions. First one, what kind of questions should a first time author should a first time author be asking editors to figure out if they're the right editor or not? Oh man, that's uh, whew, that's a big one. Uh, so here's what I would do. I would if I'm looking for an editor, and, and this is actually something I just did because I just wrote I just wrote a, a style of book that was like the first time first thing I've ever written like that. And so I went and found people who had edited other books like that, right? So like in your case, I would find my favorite, like three real estate books or something like a real estate book that felt fun to read and see if you can't find the editor for that, Hmm. right? That's number one. Number two is to, if you're looking at like, let's say you're picking between 10 editors, right? Look at the books that they name that they edited. And then see which ones you like the best. And like, if you really like, like, I found one of my editors that I use routinely because two of the books that she edited, I loved. And they were very different. I'm like, okay, this is brilliant, right? She's, she can clearly edit. So those are probably the two best ways. The other way is testing. So you f- pick five editors, give them like a few hundred dollars a piece to edit the same chapter and see what comes back. That's great advice. So my next question is, I, I think about my past and I think, why haven't, why don't I have any books done yet? Right. Cause I've been thinking about this so much for so many years and I'm sure some of it has to do with my insecurities of being criticized as writer because everybody says that I write, sorry, a number of people have said, oh, you just write like your talk. You write like you talk. It doesn't really sound like writing, you know? And so I which thought, is a good, which is a very good thing. <laughs> well, my thought is I, I do so well talking you know, maybe I should be recording, like have my partners or have some of my staff interviewing me and talking out these chapters, have it, have it transcribed up and have like heavier help from ghostwriters or editors to like, cause I know the concepts are solid. I don't have to, I don't have that much pride of like, and I have to be the one who wrote the prose per se. Do you have any guidance for navigating the like too much, too little balance beam there? Yeah, so that that is quite literally what my company does. That is our primary. We coach, we have the process. We teach you what to do and you write it yourself. We coach you through or we interview you. We use the exact same templates and everything and we interview you and get it off. It, you can totally do that yourself though. You don't have to, to pay us. So here's, here's, there's a couple things. The, there's a whole like 20, 30 page chapter in my in Scribe Method book, which you can get on scribebookschool.com. It explains it all. But the main principle is when you're doing this, you really want to have someone interviewing you or interacting with you. It's, it is a rare person who can deliver long monologues about this stuff without it sounding really weird. Right. Yeah, yeah, that makes you sense. need to be a conversation. Humans are designed for conversation. Now, I have ha- we have had clients who were professional speakers who could talk for an hour straight, and it was amazing. <laughs> it worked well. But if that's not what you do, then you want a, a, a conversation. So what I would do in your case, Jess, is I would let's say you wanted to write your book that way, the rough draft. You wanted to to do an audio record, which I think is a great idea. Get a friend of yours who has always wanted to learn about this stuff, Mm. but like never had time, right? And say, all right, let's take a Saturday. And I would do your outline ahead of time. So you know exactly, like you've said you taught seminars, you probably know exactly how to walk people through this. So you have your outline, you know what you're going to teach them, right? 
and then just press play and then say, okay, I'm going to walk you through this and then teach them like the first part. And then here's a big key. Ask them to hold their questions until the end hmm. because they are always going to ask you questions in the middle and it's going to derail you because you know so much. So have like, you don't have to prepare your speech. Just know, okay, for the first Both part, points. I teach these four things. For the second part, I have to teach them these six things. Know the four things you're going to teach and then try and teach them as quickly as possible. Like be comprehensive, but not exhaustive. And then say, okay, what questions do you have for me, right? And then you want to record the questions too. Then you teach the next part, what questions, right? Because what that does is it gives you the framework for, by giving your four points before they interrupt you, you've got it all down. And then generally their questions will fill in the holes, your sort of expert blindness, right? And you're like, I forgot to talk about this, or I got to talk about this, or I got to explain this, right? Uh, and if you, th that's, that's where I would start. And then you get that transcribed from Rev, which is like $1.20. If you want a human transcription, if possible, uh, $1.25 a minute. And then you can start that. Consider that not your rough draft. That is your pre-rough draft. And then what, what I recommend is you literally put the Rev transcript up. And then next to it, you put another like Google Doc or Microsoft Word. You do not copy and paste. You, If you're like most people, you're going to look at your transcript. You're going to think you had an amazing conversation, and you did, and your friend's going to learn it. And you're going to look at your transcript. You're laughing because you've seen podcast transcripts. And you're going to look at your transcript, and you think you're an idiot, right? So so you don't want to try and edit your transcript. It's a huge pain in the ass. You want to re read the transcript and then rewrite what you were trying to say. You can pull a few sentences out every now and then when you nail stuff. Every now and then you'll just nail paragraphs, pull them over, it's fine. But for the most part, you're going to want to rewrite your point in a way that flows better on the page, which is a skill, man. That is a distinct skill. Some people talk in complete sentences and nail it the first go. Those are creepy weirdos. Like, I don't know. I'm not one of those. <laughs> yeah. So tell me this. What's the difference? So like, you know, if I'm on your service, right, and... That, you know, I can read the descriptions on what I get for 10 grand, what I get for 30 grand, what I get for the $100,000 plus, right? What's happening at the $100,000 plus level that maybe people don't get, you know, give us some more details of, of that yeah. level. So this is normally what salespeople do is they explain all this. Uh, but honestly, man, it's mostly, there's two big things. One is there's a lot of marketing stuff. Like the audio book is in all the options that you can buy. Like 36 is kind of the base package for the okay. interview one. And then the, the, the coach one where you write it yourself is 16. And then the interview is 36. Okay. Sorry. And then that, that's like, no, that's cool. That, that's like, that includes everything from idea to finished book, but it doesn't include the audio book. It doesn't include like any extended marketing. It doesn't include all that kind of stuff. Right. And so the 100K includes all that. And then the other big thing is that it it really, you just get like one of our very best writers, you know? So like, think of it like cars. Like if you want to spend, if you want to buy a Ferrari or a, the equivalent of a Ferrari or a Lamborghini in ghostwriting is going to be someone like, I'm going to be totally obnoxious and brag. It's going to be someone like me, right? Like Tiffany Haddish has got to come to me with a big ass check and a big ass share of the back end. And it's like, okay, if I believe in her and the message, then you get it, right? So that's kind of obnoxious. But then like, if you like the uh, Maserati, let's say, or the or the Range Rover, or whatever, the high-end Range Rover, or the high-end BMW is like the ghostwriter that's like 100 to 150 grand. And there's, you know, 100, maybe 200 of those. And they're amazing writers. And they're incredible, but they're expensive. They're, they're 100 or 150 grand plus back end for, for traditional. So to get them uh, without back end, you may have to pay 150 to 250, depending, right? And then now below them, there's a tier of really, really good ghostwriters 
who are not quite name ghostwriters, but who will, they're the type who can take your book, Jess, and turn it from like a really good, well-written expert book to like Shane Snow level uh, expert expert book, right? Which is not quite Shane, because a big part of what Shane did is he created new ideas, right? You're not creating, you're creating new ideas, but it's in your niche. So you're not asking the writer to create new ideas. You're just asking them to make your ideas shine and pop on the page, which is much easier than creating new ideas, right? So that person, that's the person that you're going to get with us if you're spending a hundred grand. If you hire them independently of us, you're going to spend 50 to a hundred just for them. Like we can hire them at less because, you know, there's no, there's no customer acquisition cost. I don't have to worry about payment. We have a defined structure. So we actually work with some of the best ghostwriters in the world and they, they'll fill their downtime with our projects. Like if they, someone who's charging, let's say 75 a project will get three a year, Right. And so that's what's great for them, but they've got a lot of downtime. And so they'll come to us and be like, okay, I can take one project this month and one in September. And it's like, all right, cool. And then we pair them with one of our high-end people. Interesting. So next question. There's people who spend a lot of time on good writing, right? And then it feels like they feel like that was the end, you know, like, and they complain that nobody read their book and they, you know, like they, they're like, they see it as the finish line instead of the starting line. Can you, can you talk about seeing like having your book finally, finally edited as the starting line instead of the finish line? Yeah, no, no. Editing is the finish line, not the start. The starting line is knowing is what we just, what we started with. Well, what I, mean, Go ahead. what I mean is people who think if they write a good book, they shouldn't have to market it. That's what I mean by the starting oh, line of oh, like no, getting okay. people to buy it. I thought you meant someone who had good prose, but nothing to oh, say. No, no, no. Sorry. I mean like. Okay. Yeah, you know, a good book is like admittance to the league. You didn't win the championship by having a good book. You know, okay. just writing a good book, people aren't going to find it. You got to like market it. Someone like you who knows what they're, they're talking about hired a great editor so that deep content, uh, uh, deep contextual knowledge, and it pops off the page. Right. I wish books sold themselves, but they don't, unfortunately. And if if you if if your thought process is but my book will be different, you are going to fail, right? There's one or two books a year that catch fire, right? Like Educated by Tara Westover, right? Like that book came out of nowhere and caught fire, right? There's one or two a year that do that. Uh, they're almost always memoirs, almost always. And usually even those get something, something somewhere gave them a pop, right? But for the rest of us who are mortals, there's no way to like, you don't, you can never expect anything's going to sell. So you've got to take it out there and market it. And the way to market it, here's, here's the trick. You got to remember, no one cares about your book. No one. They only care about what your book gets them, which is why the second question I asked you was, who's your audience? And the third was, why are they going to care? Because if you know that before you write the book, then your marketing is really easy. For you, the marketing is easy. It's high-level entrepreneurs who have cash, either cash flow or big chunks of cash, right? Okay, I know where those people are. And then the question is, why are they going to care? Because you're going to teach them how to use their cash to make them money and be safe, reduce their anxiety, get into real estate. These are all things they want. So you have a book that helps them solve their problem and create as a transformation for them. Okay, great. So now all you got to do is get in front of them, right? And, and talk about the benefits, not about you or your book, because they don't care. I don't care about you, Jess. I don't care about your book. I don't care about commercial real estate. I care about how do I put my money somewhere that's safe and I don't have to think about it. Oh, you're going to teach me that using Buffett's principles, who I already know and respect. Okay, cool. Now I'm listening, right? 
That's all marketing is. You get the positioning right early, you deliver on the promise in the book, and then you put the book in front of the people who could most benefit from it and explain to them why it's going to help them. That's it. That's great. It is funny. When you say it, it sounds so simple, right? Because you know how to break it down. (laughs) But when you do it, it gets confusing. Right. I know for all of us. Well, and I think... You know, I think that's the difference between the years that you've put into this versus versus the rest of us, right? Where we can look at, you know, we can look at lists of like the 52 things you should do to market your book, right? And you know which four of those really matter. And like, it's not like the other 48 are no good, but there's four that really matter, like 90 out of 100 and there are other ones that matter a 10 out of 100. And you know Hold which on, ones those are. Hold on, let me tell you the secret though. Here's what's crazy. This is what makes book marketing so complex and annoying. If someone wrote that, like the top 50 things to do to market your book, I would bet you that almost every one of those 50 things is really important for a specific type of mm. book, right? And so that that's the problem with book marketing is that there's no such thing as the way you market books. There is only a bunch of tools and then you got to know which tools to use for which book and how to use them. And right? which audience like, and all that. Cookbooks, totally different. Totally, totally different than the way you would market a real estate book. Like there would be almost no overlap between the two things, right? Like books are very unusual. It's not like, like there's, there, there's a way you sell a car. Like there's not really, like again, unless you are Ferrari or Lamborghini, everyone sells cars exactly the same. From 10 grand to 100 grand, they're all sold exactly the same. Books, it's all over the market, all over the map, dude. So let me ask you this. You know, I think about my audience as like, you remember like the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books from 20 years ago, right? And they were maybe like a little oversold about just how easy this is going to be. And it was, you know, it was, it was almost like, uh, which is funny because I love the books, but in a way there's a little bit of infomercial in them. You know what I mean? mean, That's how Kawasaki is though. He's Okay. The funny thing is the guy completely changed my life because of books like Rich, like Cashflow Quadrants where I realized like, oh, I don't want to trade my hours for dollars. And at the same time, like I am looking for a different feel than that. You know what I mean? So it's like, I want to bring it to just regular humans who don't consider themselves investment experts or real estate experts per se. Right. But I don't want to go down to like a infomercial level and any guidance on how to, how to not be like, you know, expert who is talking above everybody's head and, but not sink so low that you're like, sound like used card sales guy. The God's honest truth is I would be shocked if you did anything that sounded like a used car salesman. You just don't. I mean, I've spent two episodes now talking to you. There is nothing about you that says used car guy. If you if you ask me, how can I sound like that? I could tell you, I guess. But like the. So this is my way of telling you, it, this annoys authors when I tell them this, but it really is the truth. The What authentic means in a book is you not trying to be anything other than who you are and you're not trying to teach anything other than what you know, right? And and so like, that's why we get people who are like, you know, they're like, oh, I want to write a book on uh, whatever sales. It's like, okay, what do you know about sales? Like, ah, eh, nothing, same as everyone else. It's like, okay, you shouldn't write the book on sales, right? Those are the people who sound scammy. Now, look, Kawasaki made a specific choice. He followed in the vein of some other real estate people, more kind of uh, people who ran seminars. And he wanted to sound like that because there is a group of people who respond to that. Your audience are not those people though. Yeah. Your audience absolutely not and so if you sound like kawasaki you are going to repel your audience 
But the fact that you already have multiple funds, you've already raised money from those people tells me you know how to talk to them. All right. So write in this book exactly that way. Yeah. And I think about, I can't remember if it was one of your videos or one of your blog posts I was reading this morning about kind of like, I felt like what you're saying is like, just forget about yourself and be really worried about being helpful. That's kind yes. of what I got out of it. And this, anyways, maybe that's well, it's, the it's advice. Why, it's why it's why the idea of you teaching your book to a friend and recording it and using that is a great idea because it you can't you can't do anything in that moment except actually help your friend. Yeah. Right. As long as it's like an actual person who actually doesn't know and really does want to learn, then it will be your book will be amazing because it will have all that energy of you trying teaching the thing you know and love to someone you care about. Yeah. You know, another question I have kind of still in the marketing vein is I think about, you know, my friends, these well-to-do entrepreneurs, right? And I'm thinking about like the CEO clubs or the LinkedIn conversations or stuff where they're at. But I hear stuff like Tim Ferriss talking about when he came out with the four-hour work week that he wanted to show up like he knew his demographic and he wanted to show up everywhere for that demographic, even if the rest of the country hadn't heard of him, right? In Chicago and New York and Silicon Valley or whatever. Well, starting there, when, when you think about this kind of like, you know, probably either an older millennial or a Gen Xer, right? Or, or young boomer, basically, who self-made entrepreneur, maybe does or doesn't have a college degree, right? And besides mm-hmm. being at, you know, young president's organization or something like that, what are the other watering holes do you think that I should look for to, to get the, to get something like this in front of people like that? There's so many. So if you want in person, I would look at, well, obviously there's EO, there's uh, a BSI, there's, I mean, there's a hundred of those groups that I would look at. You know what I, I might do? I don't know, but my guess is there's a group of people that it's in their benefit to talk about your product right? Like, I'll give you an example. One of our wealth advisors clients, he specializes in high net worth divorce women, like he manages their money. And so he took copies of his book to every high end divorce attorney in his city, huge city, right? And he gave like each of them like 100 copies. Because every divorce attorney, when a woman comes in, the first thing she asks is, I forget what the first question, but the second is always, what do I do about money? And the attorney by law is not allowed to give her financial advice and cannot take a referral fee. So what the attorneys do, like they love that he gave him the book because it's like, here's exactly what you need to do. If you have, you know, assets of 10 million or more and you get divorced, here's what to do. And he walked it exactly through. He's like, and the attorneys can say, listen, I've read this book uh, or I haven't read this book, but I know people who are with him and they really like him. I don't recommend it or not recommend it, but I have a copy. You're welcome to take it. It's a really good place to start, Right. And so like he doesn't do any other marketing now because every attorney in the city hands out his book to women because it makes them look good. Right. So like, I don't know where your main referrals are coming, but that's the first thing I would do in your case, instead of going to other groups, I would think who's already talking about me and how do I make it easier on them? Yeah. Okay. That's great. You know, just knowing my personality, the little bit from a couple hours we spent together, what kind of rookie mistakes would you think I'm likely to make or what, what just kind of, you know, my temperament a bit, you know what the book's supposed to be about, what kind of just, you know, generalized things of like, Hey, my guess is with your personality type, you're going to get bored and procrastinate or you're going to whatever. You're definitely going to, at some point you're going to fall into a rabbit hole and put way too much info in the book, which is fine. You can always cut that later. 
but your instinct is going to be, I would guess, to want to teach more and explain more and, and really dive deep into the, the cool guts of this because it's so interesting to you, uh, which is almost always what experts want to do. But like you need to, if you do that in your vomit draft, that's fine. But in, when you're editing, you got to fight that urge and go the other way. You got to make things as simple as, 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 as possible. And here's the, the frame that I use for that. I need to teach this in a way where this person can tell to, can teach it to their friends. Mm. Right. So like, and for you, that's perfect. Cause you talked about like my avatar feels dumb on the golf course with other investors and they don't know how to invest. Okay, cool. So you want your book to be so simple that they can have at least a 10 or 15 or 20 minute conversation about real estate investing and they can sound smart. So that doesn't mean more facts and figures. It means really simple explanations and then really good examples and stories that are sticky that stay in their brain. That that's makes so much the, sense. Yeah, that's the thing I would focus on the most for you. The other thing is I would, we have like a whole fear solving exercise that we put our clients through. And I would really focus on that because the fact that you've waited this long to write a book, you have an obstacle in your, in fact, even there's a, one of the things I asked you 30 minutes ago, why haven't you written this? And you deflected and you went in a different direction with the answer. That tells me that you have a deep fear somewhere. My guess is it's around identity with you, which is where it is for most people. So it's an easy guess. But there's something about either being an author or writing a book or releasing the book that is very threatening to some, some part of you. you know, and I, so the more you can think about that, the, the better. Yeah, I think, I think the reason that I haven't got one out this year is because we are too busy launching the fund to put the effort in kind of thing. But I think mm -hmm. about all the previous years and I think it's like, I appreciate great books so much that maybe I wasn't being honest about the like, well, I'm probably going to have to write eight books before I have a good one. You know, like, yeah, like, or you're telling yourself, but to I stop mean, yourself to do a book. Yeah. Like, I think it's like some quest for perfection, some quest to have like the book that like to be able to write the book, like the ones that I admire so much and thinking I've got to do that the first time. Do you know what perfectionism is used psychologically for emotionally? Hmm. Hmm. It's a defend. It's a defense against rejection. Hmm. You're afraid you aren't. You're 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 afraid you aren't good enough. And a book for anyone, it's easy to be like, well, I'm 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 hiding right here. A book means you can't hide anymore from whatever it is you're afraid of. Well, right? no, no. But I here, here's the thing. You know, I think about so at our charity, Child Rescue, you know, that combats the child trafficking, right? I've got all these you know, Delta Force and SEALs and FBI and CIA guys, right? And their community is very much like high school. Like your rep is such a big deal in the teams. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, oh, is, yeah. it is like being like on a high school sports team or something in a lot of ways, oh, yeah. okay? And it, that has its benefits and it has its downtimes of like, if you have one big screw up, there's not a lot of chance for repentance. You know what I mean? Like that uh -huh. rep, rep goes with you. Well, finance is like full of, people who are showing off and their sense of importance comes from how big their bank account is or how many Ferraris they have or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. And so there's a constant tearing each other down as a way to build yourself up that can, that can happen. And, you know, I didn't like the guys that I'm competing against. A lot of them worked at Goldman Sachs after they went to Harvard. Right. Yep. And I'm an art school dropout. And, and, uh, and plus I was like a 28 year old CEO of my last fund. So I like wasn't old enough, didn't go to Harvard or work at Goldman and, you know, and I had all these things. Right. And, uh, I what felt like, what? Hold on. You're telling yourself such a story, man. Well, that's, that's the thing like, is what advantages. 
well that's that's but that's my point of like i do think there is a lot of like like this image management thing that held me back of like you know i've read so much warren buffett and i read his mentors and i've read his followers and i've taken their classes and like i paid the price on a lot of that stuff but then i think like I, I don't even know if this is a conscious thing, but I wonder if I, 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 I sense that like I'm worried, well, if I get one thing wrong, then it will discount the last 11 years of study or something, you know, like, yeah, of course, no, the, the, the fear boils down to, I'm afraid that I'm going to make a mistake and the book's going to be bad and everyone's going to laugh at me and I'm going to lose my business and then I'm going to die alone and hungry and broke and fail my family. <laughs> basically, basically. Viral. Everyone gets into hundred percent, super normal. Yeah. Any, 100%. This has been great, but any other any other rookie mistakes that you see happen a lot or just any other guidance here? The other big one, so like I like I said, fear is a big one. Not thinking enough about your audience and what they need is a big one. The other big one is not creating a plan and sticking to it. Like uh, creating a plan with accountability. So we, we run this workshop. I've taught hundreds of, of authors how to do this. I've gotten to the point where I can pretty much tell you at the end of the workshop who's going to finish and who's not. And the number one thing that I use to determine that is how serious did they take the planning section? When we like lay out the plan, they have to lay out their own plan and they put it on their calendar and whatever. How seriously did they take that, right? The ones who take that seriously and who actually build in accountability and follow it, finish. Those who don't, usually don't. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a gut check, right? Of rubber meets the road of like, am I going to try or am I going to do it? it's related to the fear stuff because it's easy to make a plan. Like that's not hard, but who's actually going to go through with it. You've got to deal with your fear first. Yeah. Like you have, to. it's why we, we spend two hours on that in the workshops is, and really it's woven through the whole thing. It's the thing I like, dude, the information on how to write a book is honestly not that hard. Like I, I took everything out there and I made it way simpler. And so now at this point, there's really no excuse, man. Like you walked in with a perfect position. Like it, it was a little depressing. There was nothing for us to talk about around positioning because you nailed it so well. But like it goes to show that a, a good system with that a smart person applies works. So why don't more people finish their books? Because they're afraid and they will not deal with that fear. They're afraid of changing their identity. They're afraid of, I'm telling you, Jess, I think, I think more people are afraid of success actually than they are of failure. There's a lot of people who are afraid of failure. Maybe as many. I'm not sure if it's more, but very close. And I didn't understand this until I really started to break it down. And someone was really honest about it. They're like, well, what if I succeed? What happens then? And they kind of ran through all the things that would change in their life. And I was like, oh, of course. It's no different, actually. You're afraid you're going to fail. You're going to end up dying alone. You're afraid to succeed. You're going to end up dying alone because things change. We all have a part of our brain that psychologists call the ego. I like to call the protective self. Its entire job is to keep us the same, right? Because we're alive now. And so if we just don't change, we're not going to die. That's the way that part of our brain thinks. It, it, it's a great, you want it. Fear is good. The your protective self is good if you're in an emergency situation, if your car's on fire, et cetera. It doesn't help you when you're trying to create things, when you're trying to build something new, when, when you're taking a calculated risk. It, it holds you back. It's almost like a, think of it like a really overprotective CFO. You need a CFO. You want your CFO to do his job, right? But a CFO who's got too much power means the company never grows and stagnates and dies. Same thing. <laughs> I love it. Well, maybe to finish off here, 
We were talking a little bit before the recording started. Our our mutual friend, Bea Voce, was saying to ask you about just kind of your insight and the difference of writing a memoir versus any other kind of nonfiction. The, so the big, big thing is writing a memoir, writing a memoir is for you. Publishing, it's got to be for your edit. You edit for your audience and publish for your audience, but you write it for yourself, right? Whereas a nonfiction book, you're, you're, you're going to get things for it, but you're not writing. At no point is it ever about you. Even though the first question I asked you is, what do you want? Then everything else you do is in service of that want, right? Like you want more clients for your fund, but the book can't be, give me money for my fund, <laughs> because then it won't work. The book's got to be, I'm going to help you get what you want. And for a lot of those people, the right answer is give you money for your fund for them to get what they want. Well, even if it was 5% or a small percentage, right? Do what? I'm saying most of the readers probably won't, but even a small percentage of them does great for us, right? Of course. I mean, absolutely. Especially with your economics, a small percentage, but like your book actually is going to apply. There are some books who honestly, they don't sell any copies except to potential clients. And that's great. Like we've had so many authors who sold 500 copies of of a nonfiction book and yet made $3 million, right? Because like everyone who bought it either considered or was a client because, and they were really niche, which is fantastic. Yours is broader. Yours, you could sell, you could sell five or 10,000 copies of this book in the first year. Like if you do a little bit of marketing, because everyone wants more money, a lot of people are interested in real estate, uh, especially we're about to see a, like a lot of changes in commercial real estate. A lot of space is going to open up for new people to come in with new ideas. I could see your book doing really well among people who you're right, who have either no, no desire or no chance of being a client of yours. But all that does is raise your esteem and status with with clients. You know, like if someone in my company reads your book and loves it and starts investing in commercial real estate and I see them and I'm like, you just bought a fourplex? We pay you 70 grand. How the hell did you do this? Right. And they explain, oh, dude, I read this book. And I'm like, oh, shit, man. All right. Maybe I'll go check it out. And I'm like, oh, this is actually for me. He just figured out how to do it from there. Yeah, I love it. Well, so give us the website again for people who want to come take the course, find out more about you guys. Bookschool.com. Okay. Anything else you want to leave people with? No, I mean, I believe everyone else should write a book. You know, like I've believed that forever, but it's just when, when you're ready, we'll be there. Whether you pay us or you don't pay us, we're always going to give all the information for free. We're always going to help everyone do it. Whenever you're ready, we're there. I love it. Hey, thanks for doing this. This has been great. My pleasure, man. So are you, hold on. So hold Here's the quick thing. Are you going to write your book or not? Yeah. You're going to start? Yep. You are? Um, okay. And I've been having conversations with my partners and we're kind of just deciding like how valuable is it to the fund for me to have a book and, you know, what level of editor, what level of folks are we going to put behind this instead of, you know, a Jess vanity project? Can we actually take this serious and make it, you know, Make it so good that people are passing on to other people and people actually find out about I, it. I would be, I'll tell you, I would be shocked if if you could spend 50 grand in any better way. Shocked. And I mean, 50 grand, like, like consider your marketing budget, whatever it is. I would be shocked if you get a better ROI on any 50 grand. Well, again, 400 episodes of the podcast later, I just see that over and over. I feel like I've been hit in the face with a cricket bat, like... Hey, this is a extremely, you know, it's not mandatory, but it's pretty darn close mandatory tool for becoming a high profile expert in a sector. There you go. Love it. Okay. Everybody. Thanks for listening.